When I was in middle school, it was kind of the first time I started listening to the radio, and, and uh, my parents really liked oldies, so I would listen to oldies. I guess they weren't necessarily oldies for them, but they were for me. And uh, there was this one song, I remember when I was like 10 or 11 years old, hearing it, and it had this really cool melody, kind of haunting. Yeah, that's it. Soak it in. Just soak it in for a moment. That's good. That's good. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for that. So when I was 10 or 11, I thought that song, man, that's just a cool song. And I didn't really pay that much attention to the lyrics. I just thought it was a really cool song. And then I got a little bit older. And when I was like in high school, 15, 16, 17, I'm paying a little bit more attention. And I start listening to the song and actually paying attention to the words. And uh, you, you guys all know the song, but let me just read some of these to you, okay? Imagine there's no heaven. It's easy if you try. No hell below us, above us only sky. Imagine all the people living for today. <laughs> Imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for and no religion to. Imagine all the people living life in peace. You may say I'm a dreamer, but I'm not the only one. I hope someday you'll join us and the world will be as one. And, it's, you know, I would just hear this and I thought, man, it sounds so beautiful, doesn't it? I mean, in one sense, I mean, it, it sounds really great, kind of. Except for the fact that the more I read it and the more I listened to it and I heard the song, I was like, that sounds so pointless to me. I mean, this, this idea that the secret to the world's happiness, the secret to everything is that we believe nothing, that, that nothing matters, that there is no meaning. Like, that's the secret to peace on earth and goodwill towards men. Like, that's the secret. And, and even when I was just 16 or 17, I was like, man, that just sounds so dumb. Like, I just, like, it just didn't make sense to me. But, you know, as corny as it was, at that age, it made me think. And I started thinking, like, what would I fight for? Like, what would I be willing to die for? You know, my family and maybe my friends and, and maybe my country. But was there, was there anything else? And it wasn't until I got to college that I really began to understand God's word. And I began to really wrestle with the gospel. And, and, and in that, I was suddenly like, man, this, this is it for me. It's the gospel. This is what I want my life to be about. This is what I want to live for. And this is what I would die for. This is what I would fight for. And it just became so clear to me that if the gospel is true, that this is worth fighting for. This is worth protecting. Like this message that, that while we were sinners, okay, while we were lost in our sins, that, that God looked upon us and he said he took mercy and he sent his son Jesus to die for us so that he doesn't count our sins against us. Like all the bad stuff that we've done in our life, he's not holding that against us. He's not like, oh, remember that time you did this? He's like, I'm going to erase all of that and I'm going to bring you into my family. I'm going to make you my child and I'm going to love you. And I thought, man, if that's true, then that is the most important, the most significant message that this world has ever known or will ever know. This is the message worth fighting for. This is the only hope there is for the world this is the hope for, for, for me and for you and for our families and for our kids and for our friends and for everyone. And if this is true, then it's worth fighting for. 
I mean, I mean, look, look, if it's not true, if it's not true, then, then we're wasting our time. I mean, let's just be really clear about this, okay? If, if this message is not the real, true message, then we should all just pack it up and go home. There, there's no reason to do this whole church thing and come on Sunday mornings. I would rather sleep in, so would you. We could go play golf or something, right? Not to not golf, because guys, you should totally go play golf, um, right? But that's, that's how this should play out. There's no reason to do this if this isn't true. But if this is true, if this gospel message is true, then it is the greatest message, it is the most important message, the most important truth in the history of the world given by God. You know, and I, just, I would just read the scriptures and I read about like the apostles and how they're all, you know, they all die these violent deaths because they're willing to defend the gospel. Like they believe it. It's everything to them. And you read about the people of faith in Hebrews 13. All these men and women who are willing to lay down their lives for the sake of the gospel. And you look at the apostle Paul. And he's willing to, to be beaten and flogged and thrown in prison and shipwrecked and all the rest. Because he says, man, this gospel, I'm not going to compromise on it. I'm not going to let anything happen to him. I'm going to defend it with my life. Because it's everything for him. It's not just this abstract proposition of, you know, Jesus died and this happened or whatever. No, it's personal. It's real for him. It's changed his life. And he's not about to roll over. Not in a million years. He's going to die for that. Willingly. And he does. And so then Paul, when he's writing here to Timothy, like this is his message. This is what this book is about. And it starts right at the very beginning. He's like, Timothy, we have to stand up for the gospel. We have to defend it because it's the only thing that saves. It's the only thing that saves. So if you, if you have your Bibles, we're going to look at first Timothy. I'm just going to start right at the beginning. Verse one, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by command of God. I love that. Paul didn't like volunteer. He wasn't like, okay, pick me, pick me. No, God commanded him. Paul, you will be an apostle. You're going to go and you're going to serve the gospel and you're going to die for it. By the command of God, our Savior and of Christ Jesus, our hope. To Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Lord. Verse 3, as I urged you when I was going to Macedonia, remain at Ephesus. Okay, so Paul's remembering back a conversation that he had with Timothy when they were both in Ephesus. All right, so this was a, a, a town and Paul had planted a church there and Timothy was there. And so Paul says, I'm going to leave, but Timothy, you stay there, remain at Ephesus so that you may charge certain persons not to teach any different doctrine. Timothy, you've got to stay there and you have to charge these people. Do not teach anything other than the gospel. You've got to protect it. Verse 4. Nor to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies which promote speculations rather than the stewardship from God that is by faith. Paul tells Timothy, you've got to protect the gospel from these people. From these false teachers, people who want to teach something other than the true gospel, and they get caught up in like these superstitions and endless discussions and debates and speculations over essentially like Bible trivia, instead of following in obedience, God in faith. And what's fascinating here is that Paul saw this coming. Paul actually, he already knew, he was anticipating this. In fact, if you go back to Acts 20, when Paul is actually in Ephesus and he's getting ready to leave, he goes to the Ephesian church leaders, the church leaders there, and he says, you need to watch out because there are people who are going to come into this church and they're going to teach a false gospel and they're going to corrupt and they're going to destroy the church. 
So Acts 20, verse 29. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. And so when Paul writes this letter to Timothy, what he's saying, Timothy, those wolves, they're real. And they've come into the flock and you don't make peace with wolves. You have to stand up to them. You have to fight them. You have to stand up for the sake of the gospel. And you don't let anybody get distracted. And you don't let them twist it. You don't let them distort it. Because the gospel is the only thing that saves. It's the only thing that's real. Everything else is a counterfeit. It's fake. It's worthless. It's pointless. It won't do us any good. So um, a few weeks ago, uh, we went with my family down into uh, Philadelphia. And uh, we had some friends with us. And we were looking for free stuff to do. So we did the usual free stuff. But then we found out that you could go to, um, I guess it's the Philadelphia Mint. And, and what I learned is that there's actually two different ones. One is where they actually make the coins, which is really cool. And I wish we'd gone there. But we went to the other one that has this really small, like, interactive display that's all about the economy. Which, if you're an economist, I'm sure would be fascinating. But when you have six and five and four-year-old kids, not so much. Um, but it did have, it had this one display I thought was really cool. It had a bunch of bills lined out. I don't know if you, any of you have been there and seen this. It had a bunch of bills, like $1, $5, $10, $20, and so on. And then you had to guess wh- whether they were fake or counterfeit. As so you go over and you hit the button, it tells you whether you're right or whatever. And, and I, did, I did pretty well. Um, I'm not saying I'm going to work for the Treasury anytime soon, but I, I did pretty well on it. Um, my kids, not so much. Like my, my six-year-old, terrible. Terrible. Had no idea. My four-year-old, even worse. Had no idea what was real and fake. Which... <laughs> Which isn't surprising because they've never seen money, like ever. I mean, think about it. They, my kids have seen credit cards and my phone pay for stuff. That's, that's about it. I mean, other than the tooth fairy and like the $10 bill that grandma sends at their birthday, they've never seen money ever. And so from, from, from where they're coming from, like it doesn't matter. They're never going to use money ever, okay? But the whole point of the display is to, to show you that it really matters that you can tell the difference. That, that the real thing actually has value and it has purchasing power and it's part of the economy and it's, it's fundamental to how society and civilization works. But the counterfeit, it has no purchasing, purchasing power. It's worthless. It's pointless. In fact, it's even worse than that. It's bad. Like if you take counterfeit money and you insert it, inject it into circulation, it's bad for the economy. It messes up the value of money. It's actually detrimental. It's harmful. It's destructive. It's counterfeit. It's fake. It's not just worthless. It's dangerous. And see, today, right now, there are churches all over this world and all over our country that are teaching counterfeit gospels. And I'm sad to say it, but it's true. Today, you can walk into a church and you will hear the pastor tell you that what God really cares about is that you're a good person. And he'll tell you that in all sincerity, that what God really cares about is that you're just a really nice person. You're a really good person. If you're just better than you are bad, then that's enough. Like there's this scale. And if your good deeds, being good outweighs the bad, then you're in. That's all that really matters. And so when you mess up, when you sin, all you have to do is you just have to do enough good things to kind of tip the scale back in your favor. But what the gospel says is that there is no scale. What the gospel says is that we are all guilty. We're all messed up. That, that we can't be successful enough or good enough or good enough parents or pretty enough or make enough money to earn our way to heaven. 
Like, we can't do it. Whatever we try to do to get in with God, to justify ourselves, none of that works. It's Jesus alone who does all of it. He's the one who justifies. He's the one who saves. Today, you can walk into churches and you'll hear pastors tell you that because Jesus is love, because God is love, that there is no hell, that there is no condemnation for sin, there's no judgment, and so there's no actual need for the gospel at all. Today, you can walk into churches and you'll hear the pastor tell you that what God really wants for you is for you just to be happy and healthy and wealthy. And if you just believe enough and give them $100, God will do that for them. See, there are false gospels all around us, and they're in our churches, and they're fake, and they're counterfeit, and they're worse than worthless. They're dangerous. And I think the reason we keep falling for them, I think the reason they keep making their way in to our churches and even into our hearts is because they tell us things about ourselves that we want desperately to believe. We want to believe that we're okay, that there's nothing wrong with us. We want to believe that we can make it on our own. We can save ourselves. And we want to believe that what God really wants is for me to be happy in this life right now. And so we keep falling for them. We keep buying them. But they're not real. So, I'm not... uh, I'm not really great at house projects, um, and a few of you have helped me can attest to that. Um, and, um, so I, I, was, I put my, my skill level at like mediocre and down. And, uh, and, but my dad, my dad is the polar opposite. My dad is phenomenal at house projects. He's an architect, but he's way, like, that's just his day job. He's a craftsman. He's an artist. Everything he does is beautiful, okay? So whenever my parents come to visit, I always make sure to plan multiple house projects because inevitably, here's how this plays out. If I start doing, let's just pretend for a second, I'm tiling my bathroom floor. And I start to do that, and I'm doing the best I can, which is pretty lousy. Inevitably, my dad will walk over, watch me for a second, and then be like, all right, just move. (laughs) Every time, it happens every time, and it's awesome because it will be amazing. He will do this incredible job. Now, I could be really prideful and stubborn and kind of be in denial and be like, no, dad, I'm doing a fantastic job. I don't need your help. Just back off, right? But I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to do that. I'm going to admit the truth that I'm pretty lousy and I need all the help I can get. But see, for me to accept my dad's help, I have to admit that reality. I got to admit that I'm not very good at it and I need help. And it's the same with the gospel. The reason we keep buying all these false teachings, the reason we keep believing all this other stuff is because they tell us what we want to hear because what we don't want to hear is what the gospel assumes about us. The basis for the gospel is that we are not okay. There's something desperately wrong with our hearts and we can't do anything about it. And God is not really that interested in our happiness in this life. He's got much, much, much bigger plans for us. But see, until I can accept that, then I'm never going to accept the gospel. See, um, if you go back to the Old Testament, like this was, this was a huge reason for why God gives the law to begin with. Like if you go back to the Old Testament and God gives the, the law to Moses, like part of that is to constrain sin. Like he's trying to create boundaries and rules to keep them from just being utterly sinful. So he's trying to show them the tracks, but also he's showing them that they're actually guilty. 
He's showing them that they need the law, but more than that, they need grace, that the law can't save them. And so if you skip down to verse 8, this is what Paul wants Timothy to remind the church at Ephesus. Because some of them have gotten confused, and they're thinking, no, we can save ourselves. There's this law, and if I just follow it closely enough, then I can save myself. And so Paul wants to say, no, there's a different use of the law. So verse 8, we know that the law is good if one uses it properly. Understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral and perverts, enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine, in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. So Paul here, he's basically like summarizing the Ten Commandments, That's what you just saw there. He's kind of summarizing in his own way in order to summarize all of the Old Testament law to say God gives us this law, not for the law abiding citizen, but for the law breakers. The law isn't there to save you. It's to show you that you need saving and that God is the only one in his grace who can do that. But we need the law to show us that we need grace. We need the law to show us our guilt. So so when I tell my kids... When they go to bed, don't get out of bed at night. This happened last night, so this is very real for me. When you tell them, like, don't, if I forget, if I forget, don't, and I don't tell them, don't get out of bed at night, they are going to come up with, I don't know how many excuses to get out of bed. Any, any parents, you know this, like, kids are unbelievably creative when it comes to getting out, out of bed multiple times. They need a snack, they need a drink, they need to tell me some random fact about sharks or dinosaurs, or there's too much light, and then the next one comes down and says, there's not enough light. Right? It just goes on and on. But when I stop and I lay down the law and I say, do not get out of bed or there will be consequences. Like there's the line. I've drawn this line in the sand. You stay in bed and you're innocent. You get out. You're guilty. It's very clear. It's very simple. End of discussion. You're innocent or you're guilty, period. See, God's law, what Paul's referring to here, he's talking about the Old Testament law. But for you and me, all of God's word It's showing us, it's revealing to us that we are lawbreakers, that we are not innocent. I mean, how many of us, all right, how many of us would drive too fast if it weren't for speed limits? That's a trick question. You're already driving too fast. Yeah, see, we're already lawbreakers. It's already happening. It doesn't matter whether speed limits or not. How many of us would cheat on our taxes if nobody would catch us? I mean, think about this for a second. Like if there were no repercussions, if nobody was ever going to catch us, if God himself would never find out what we did, what wouldn't we do? Like what depth would we not sink to? See, there's no bottom to that rabbit hole. See, we need God's law. We need God's law to graciously show us our guilt. Do you get that? Like this is God's grace for us. We need God's word to show us that we're guilty. Because if I don't accept that I'm guilty, if I don't accept that ruling in my life, if I don't accept that God's authority to declare that about me, then the gospel is not good news. The gospel is offensive. It's insulting. God, how dare you say this? There's something wrong with me. How dare you say that I can't solve myself and fix myself? See, I I need the gospel. I, I need, excuse me, I need the law to tell me that I need the gospel. Because I can't appreciate the good news unless I understand the bad news. 
You you get that? Like, I can't appreciate, I can't understand, and I'll never accept the good news unless I understand and accept the bad news first. I can't have the sweet without the sour. So when when Carrie and I um, first moved from Texas, just to give you an idea, um, I don't know how many of you are familiar with Texas, but there's basically two seasons. It's summer, eight months out of the year, and then there's the other four months that are ugly. I don't know. Um, it's just like the leaves. There's not really fall. The leaves just in one day, they turn brown and they, they hit the ground. That's it. And, uh, and then it's kind of mildly cold and rainy. And then one day everything blooms and that's it. And, uh, and so you don't, you don't appreciate spring like spring. Who cares about spring? And then summer happens and you're just kind of trying to endure it because it's over a hundred degrees. And, and, and then we moved out here. And, uh, just, just for the record, when we were going to move out here, Paul told us, um, hey, don't worry about winter. It's really not that bad. Um, <laughs> seriously, he was like, it's not that bad. Last year we had like three inches of snow. No big deal. The year we moved winter, five feet of snow. <laughs> five feet of snow. We believed him because he said he loved Jesus. I don't know. That was... <laughs> all right? And, and so, but here's the deal. After the snow melt, so I didn't see my yard from November to March. Literally did not see it. Started snowing, never saw it. March happened and then something magical happened. The snow melted. I'm, I'm, I'm seriously like, this is spring. I had no idea. And I'm walking around. Literally like this actually happened. I'm walking around. I'm like, I didn't know I had that flower garden. I didn't, I didn't know I had that flower. But I didn't know I had that patch of grass. Like I had completely forgotten what was underneath all the snow. It had been so long. And suddenly I'm like, man, I get it now. Like, I get spring and I get summer. Like, they're beautiful. But see, I could never appreciate them until I'd endured a Pennsylvania winter. And now I get it. See, until we can appreciate and understand the bad news, we're never going to accept the good news. We're never going to accept the gospel. It really, um, it drives me crazy when I hear people talk about um, about how judgmental and mean our God is. I, I, it drives me crazy because the truth is that, that the gospel message isn't that God is trying to hurt us. The truth of the gospel message isn't that God is being mean to us. It, that's the response to the bad news. The bad news is that this is our condition and he's just being honest with us. He's telling us, you are in sin And sin leads to death and destruction and bad things. It's a disease. Like, this is bad for you. And the message of the gospel is, I love you, and I'm not going to give you what you deserve. You deserve judgment. You deserve hell, but I'm not going to give you that. That's the message of the gospel, that our God is gracious and merciful, and that he is waiting and longing to pour out his grace and mercy and love upon us. That's the message. That's who our God is. He already loves us more than we can imagine. I mean... How many of you parents um, have ever had a kid in the middle of the night get sick in their bed? I know that's gross. You're like, I thought we were in church. We're talking about this. Yeah, listen, if, you, you've all been there, okay? And you, you walk in and it smells terrible and you're like, there they are. But how many of you, you walk in and you're like, clean yourself up and then we'll talk. How many of you walk in and you're like, man, I would love you, but you are a mess. Like, this is horrible. I don't even know what's wrong. No, you walk in and you're like... All right, I love you, and because I love you, I'm going to, you know, kind of like do this and carry you off to the bathtub, right? I mean, that, that's the beauty of it, that, that the, the gospel message is that we don't have to clean ourselves up, that God finds us in our mess. That's the grace of God, that he finds us in our mess, 
And he's telling us, you're messy, you smell terrible, but I love you, and now I'm going to be the one who cleans you up. He doesn't say, clean yourself up, and then we'll talk. He says, I'm going to take you, and I'm going to love you, and I'm going to clean you up, and I'm going to make you perfect, I'm going to make you holy, I'm going to make you like my son. And see, the solution isn't to be in denial about this. The solution isn't to be like, actually, I'm perfect and good and everything's fine. And God, how dare you say something other than me? It's like if my child is sitting there, and this has happened, sadly, and they're, they're in their bed and they're smelling terrible and it's vomit and it's gross. Like, they're not like, Dad, I'm great. Everything's fine. Everything's really good. You can just go back to what you're doing. I don't need any of this. No, they're like, Dad, Mom, come help me. And see, this is what, this is the grace of God. Right? That, that God finds us in our mess. And instead of us, we don't have to pretend and be like, no, everything's good with me. Everything's fine. Instead, we throw ourselves on the mercy of God and say, God, and I can't clean myself up. You've got to come do this. See, that's the love of God. That's the grace of God. This is the gospel. That we admit that we are a mess and we're broken and we're nasty and we smell terrible. But, but God loves us so much. And he finds us in all of our mess and our brokenness and our failures and our misery and he says, man, I love you and I'm going to clean you up. I love you too much to leave you there. See, guys, that, that's worth fighting for, isn't it? Man, that message, because so many of us, we're trying to pretend that everything's okay, but we know better. We know better. But that message, that God loves us like that, that's worth fighting for. That's worth dying for. Um, if, if we're followers of Jesus Christ, like if you're a believer this morning, I want you to get this. Like, like this can't be 60, 85%. Like you've got to be all in on this. Like you've got to understand the gospel and you have to have this conviction that this gospel is true, that it's real, that it's worth fighting for. And it doesn't mean that you don't have doubts, okay? I, I, I have doubts. Everybody wrestles with doubts at one time or another. But I've come to this point in my life where I'm like, this is it for me. Like, this is what I believe. And I'm going to doubt my doubts. And I'm going to fall back on the grace of God. And I'm going to fall back on the truth of God's word. And some of you get that. Some of you are like, yeah, man, I get that. And I believe the gospel. And you're all in. And you're ready to fight for the gospel and defend it and go debate somebody. And that's fantastic. We need people like you. But I just want to acknowledge that there's others of you. And you believe in the gospel just as deeply. But all of that makes you a little bit nervous. Because you're like, okay, fight to defend the gospel. Like, what does that mean? What are we talking about here? Like, are we talking about beating people up with, with our Bibles? Are we talking about trolling people on Twitter with the gospel? Like, what, what does that mean? And I get that. I get that. I get why you might say, you know what, let's, let's just chill out here a little bit. Let's not be too radical. Let's everybody take a deep breath because there's been a lot of evil done in this world in the name of Jesus. And see, I think that's why it's so important right here that Paul makes it really clear when he's talking about defending the gospel and fighting for the gospel, that the clear aim of that is love. It's love. If you look at verse 5, the aim of our charge is love. That issues from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith, certain persons, by swerving from these, have wandered away into vain discussion, desiring to be teachers of the law without understanding either what they're saying or the things about which they make confident assertions. So you see what Paul's saying here? He says, on the one hand, we've got the gospel. And he says, look, 
Timothy, I want you to defend the gospel because when you defend the gospel, the gospel inevitably produces love. It doesn't produce animosity. It doesn't produce violence. It doesn't produce hatred and anger. It produces love. So you defend the gospel because of what it leads to. It produces and promotes love. But on the other hand, we have these false teachers. And what inevitably happens with these false teachings is that it leads them to arrogance, ignorant arrogance. What does it say? That they make these confident assertions because they want to be teachers of the law and they have no idea what they're talking about. So on the one hand, you've got the gospel that produces in humility love for God and for other people because it acknowledges that we're nothing special. I'm not enlightened. I'm not smarter than anybody else. Right? It produces love. But on the other hand, there's these false teachings. There's these distortions. And those promote arrogance and pride. And so these guys, these teachers, they walk around and they want everybody to think that they're so smart. And look how superior they are. And they look down on everyone else because they're right and everyone else is wrong. And I think there's a real warning for many of us in this. um, That we can't just throw out the truth and walk away. I, I think there's a real warning for us in the church that we have to be considerate about how we share the gospel, right? That it's so easy for us to get caught up in what I'll call like the truthfulness of the gospel, which is absolutely true and fundamental. And we don't compromise on that, but we get so wrapped up in the truthfulness of it that we forget what it's actually for. And so I can't just callously communicate the gospel to somebody or just throw truth at them. Like, here's the truth. Deal with it. Like a drive-by gospel shooting. Right? I, can't, I can't treat people like that because the gospel always produces love. And so if I'm not communicating it out of love, then the message of the gospel is compromised. Like this is the message of the gospel. It always produces love for God and for other people. And so we can't share the gospel in such a way that we lord over people. We can't be callous towards other people. We can't feel superior. A Christian never struts. We never walk around going, man, I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Like that's not part of the gospel. The gospel doesn't allow us to do that. I mean, remember Jonah? Think back to the Old Testament. Remember Jonah? He's the guy who got swallowed by the big fish. And what was God's message to him? He said, you got to go to Nineveh and tell them that my judgment is coming. And so Jonah eventually gets to Nineveh and he walks around. He says, God's judgment's coming. God's judgment's coming. God's judgment's coming. And they repent. The Ninevites, they repent. And then God relents. He says, hey, they've repented, and so he spares them. And what is Jonah's response? You remember? Is he like, yay, for those Ninevites? No. Man, he's angry. He's like, God, I knew you were going to do this. This is why I didn't want to come in the first place. God, I knew you're a God of mercy and love, and so you were going to spare these evil people. See, he didn't love them. He hated them. See, guys, we can't be Jonah's. We can't be Jonah's. Listen, God didn't give us the gospel so that we could be right. Jesus didn't die on the cross for you and for me so that we could be right and feel superior to everybody else who's wrong. Jesus Christ died on the cross for you and for me because out of grace and mercy, when we didn't deserve it, he loved us. And that knowledge should drive us to love. And if that knowledge isn't producing love in us, if it's not making us more loving towards other people, then we haven't really understood the gospel. See, I, I, uh, 
I worry sometimes about how we look to the people out there. Because, man, I really want us to look loving. I, I want us, to, I want us to, to have grace and truth and love and truth. And I want it to be in this perfect tension and balance. But I'm, I'm afraid that so often people, when they look in here and they look in at the church, they don't see the love part. They just see a bunch of people who look judgmental and small-minded and we're wrapped up in our trivial you know, arguments and bitterness and everything else, and we're just trying to find ways to hurt them and judge them and be mean to them. See, guys, we got to be so careful about how we're communicating God's truth out there. we got to be so careful about how we, how we explain God's gospel because, I mean, think about this. This is so personal. This is so personal. I mean, these issues that are facing our society today with, with gender issues and sexuality and all the rest of it, like, these are important issues, but how we communicate God's truth is absolutely as important as the truth itself. We can't be Jonah. We can't be Jonah. So we have to stand up for truth. I mean, let me, let me just be clear. I hope, I hope that's been clear from the beginning. Like, I'm not saying in any way we compromise the truth, but understand it is easy to be Right? Like, that's the easy part. And anybody can be right. I mean, here's God's word. This is what it says. There, you're right. But the goal isn't to be right. The goal is to be redemptive. And that requires both love and truth together. And this week, I I would just, um, as I was reading this, I just took some time, um, just felt convicted to stop and ask God, like, am I more loving than I used to be? Am, am I more loving? You know, I've been a Christian for a long time. Um, and am I more loving today than I was a year ago or five years ago or 10 years ago? I mean, think about that. Maybe some of you have been a Christian longer than I have, or you've been following Jesus for years now. Like, are you more loving today than you used to be? Because understand, guys, like if, if we're not, then all of this stuff, all this church thing that we're doing and the songs and going to Bulgaria and, and the golf outing and sermons and worship and all this stuff, like none of this matters without love. I mean, Paul makes that clear in 1 Corinthians 13. Without love, this is just a noisy banging gong. Like all of this is centered around the gospel and the gospel produces love. And if I'm not on that trajectory, like if I'm not more compassionate if I'm not more loving, if I'm not more patient, if I'm not more kind, then what, what path am I on if I really understood the gospel? Because, see, the gospel is the only thing that's going to make me loving like Jesus. The gospel is the only thing that has the power to transform my heart, to, to take away my hatred, to, to take away my prejudice, the gospel is the only thing big enough to change my heart like that. It's the only thing that transforms us and makes us more like Christ. See, guys, that's why it's worth fighting for. That's why we defend the gospel, because it's truth and it's powerful. Listen, um, there, there are so many false 
Gospels out there. I mean, so many variations, so many little twists and distortions along the way. And I, and I just read Paul's warning here, and I think about how easy it is for us to fall for some of these. And it creeps in almost unnoticed. And we've got to be careful. We've got to be constantly evaluating our own hearts. And we have to be constantly listening to the teaching from up here. Right? I mean, don't listen. Don't take my word for it. Acts 17, it talks about the Bereans who, when the Apostle Paul would come and teach, they would then go to the scriptures for themselves and see if what he said was true. Look, that's, that's what we have to do. Don't just listen to me. Don't just listen to Paul. Like, you have to be in scripture yourself. You need to know God's truth. Can you tell the difference between the genuine article and a fake? And this is why you've got scripture lists every week in your bulletins for you to stop and for you to read for yourself. See what God's word says. See what the gospel says. And then you show up here and you test us. And you listen to us and you go back and you test us. Because you've got to know it. You've, you've got to know it. It's not enough for me to know it. It's not enough for your buddy to know it or for Paul to know it or your small group leader to know it. You have to know it and then we have to guard it, protect it. We have to embrace this idea that the gospel is worth fighting for. It's worth dying for. Because, guys, close is not close enough, okay? The gospel isn't up for grabs. We're talking about the message, the message that frees us from sin. We're talking about the message that breaks chains of addiction. We're talking about the message that brings reconciliation and healing. We're talking about the message that destroys every evil that wants to crush us in this world. We're talking about the message that brings God's kingdom to this world through us. It's the only hope there is for the world. And so we have to protect it. We have to defend it. We have to be willing to die for it. And if we don't, if we aren't, then we don't get it. Listen, um, there are wolves. Don't kid yourself. There are wolves. And we're naive to think that none, no wolves will ever find their way into GVF. There are wolves, and we have to be able to stand up and defend. And we have to know the genuine from the counterfeit. We, this charge that Paul gives Timothy, this is his charge to us as well. God's charge to us that we are the front line. We are the followers of Christ. This isn't anyone else's responsibility. This is ours. But we have to stand up for the gospel in our church, in our community, in our families, in our workplaces, and in our own hearts, everywhere that the gospel is pressing in, everywhere that the gospel is present, which is everywhere, we have to stand up. We have to stand up. So I just want to pray for us um, because this is real. Like This is as true for us today as it was for Timothy way back then. So I just want to pray for us. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for our church that God would protect us, but that we would have the courage to stand up and to fight for the gospel because it's absolutely worth it. It's absolutely worth it. God, we just come before you right now and we just recognize that this truth is greater than anything we can possibly imagine. Like this truth is so beautiful. And we really begin to understand it. When we understand where we've come from, when we understand what you say about us, and then we understand this gospel, that there's nothing more beautiful than your truth, the gospel that Jesus Christ died for us, that we don't have to clean ourselves up. 
We don't have to pretend that we're okay, but that you find us where we are and you make us new. And God, I just know that, that there are wolves. There are those who want to seek in, and I just recognize that, man, in society today, and I really believe this, there is going to be increasing pressure to abandon the gospel, that there is increasing pressure to, to compromise it or to distort it. And I pray that we would stand strong. I pray that we would have courage, that through your Holy Spirit we have the power to say, no, this is God's word, this is what the gospel says, and I'm not going to back down. That we would be the front line. God, I pray that you would empower us. I pray that you would give us eyes to see what's true. Thank you for your word that shows us. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that gives us discernment and shows us truth from error. God, we just ask for your protection on our church, in our world, in our own hearts. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.